listening to all the other really good ideas that people have talked about, I think we can also step back one more step further and think about how the activities program fits within the the context of the life of the person. So uh, we don't want to think of the activities program as like a separate offering. It should be part of clinical care. It's part of lifestyle care. It's part of meeting their needs. It's It's not an additional extra. Silver Adventures is a content and technology company dedicated to improving the lives of older adults through immersive virtual reality experiences. And this podcast is our opportunity to hear from industry experts, thought leaders, and passionate individuals to share with you their knowledge, expertise, and experiences. Welcome to the Age Care Enrichment Podcast. I'm your host, Ash Deneef, and this is our very first panel episode. After some feedback from you guys, our listeners, we decided to break up our in-depth one-on-one interviews and present an open form discussion on a topic that many of us will be familiar with, activities and recreation in aged care. And we've assembled an international panel of experts and practitioners to share their experiences and insights in this fast field and how we can overcome some common challenges and deliver more engaging programs for care recipients. Joining us on the show today is Lee Fei Lo, a professor of health and aging at the University of Sydney, as well as an aged care and dementia care researcher and author. Maury Voicey Barlin, an Australian creative engagement specialist who works with care recipients, particularly in one-on-one settings. Orkidea Tamayo Mortera, president of the New Zealand Society of Diversional and Recreational Therapists. And Kelly Strandberg and Sarah Kyle, principals at LE3 Solution, an American aged care consultancy specialising in engagement programs. This conversation raises a lot of questions, like the need for spontaneity in activities programs, who's responsible for engagement, and some ways to develop more personal and effective programs for care recipients. This is a brand new format for us, and we'll be releasing these panel episodes once a month. But if you love our normal program, you don't have to worry, it'll be back next week. And that's it. So I hope you enjoy our very first panel episode on activities and engagement programming. So our crack squad for today, we're going to go around the chat and introduce ourselves. Maury, can we start with you? Hi, Ash. Um, my name is Maury Voicey-Barlin, and I'm a creative engagement specialist. I deliver creative therapeutic uh, weekly sessions to about 60 elders uh, living in residential aged care, and these sessions are one-on-one. Um, I would work with people with various stages of dementia and uh, or people that are self-isolating is primarily where I'm focused. And uh, of course, people with distressed behaviours uh, or reactive behaviours. Perfect. Thanks, Maury. And Orkidea? Hello, everyone. Um, I am Orkidea and I am a registered diversional and recreational therapist in New Zealand. Uh, and my role is as the president of the New Zealand Society of DRTs. So basically supporting around 2,000 recreational therapists across the country. Yes. Thank you. Fantastic. Welcome. And Lee Fei. G'day. I'm Lee Fei Lo. I'm a psychologist and professor in ageing and health at the University of Sydney. And I'm so excited to learn from everyone about how we can better engage um, our elders. Fantastic. Thanks, Lee Fei. And Kelly Strandberg and Sarah Kyle. Hello, everyone. This is Kelly Strandberg. I'm principal at LE3 Solutions. And we are part of a strategic consulting firm based out of Lake Mary, Florida in the U.S. That's it. Sarah from LE3 Solutions. Perfect. Love it. Well, thanks so much, everybody, for joining us. And let's just jump right into it. Today, we're talking about activities, engagement, leisure, and all sorts of different programming solutions for aged care of different types. And I wanted to pose a question first to maybe we'll start with, with Kelly here. This is a question about if we're starting we're starting from scratch with an activities program in a residential care facility, or we're looking to overhaul what we're existing, the existing offerings, what do you think is the very first step to consider? The first step to consider is what is your communities or your residential settings process to get to know the resident? And what is that process what is the cadence that you connect with the resident? 
So is it day one when they move in? Those of us who worked in a community would probably tell you that's not wise. <laughs> They're going through a lot as they transition. And then where does this information get housed? And how deep do we go? And, and Sarah and I continuously emphasize the need to go deeper beyond surface interests, hobbies that we need to start to get to know people on a much deeper level. But that is always where we want to start is how well do we know our residents? And what is that process? I think in my experience, um, definitely a great point, getting to know the process, um, the person's life story, abilities, cognitive abilities, physical abilities, uh, desires. Um, I think due to the context of Aotearoa, New Zealand, uh, culture, uh, definitely that's something that uh, it's kind of predominant in this country and the level of emotional need. Um, so that's, I think, something that I will definitely focus on when I am looking at providing um, therapeutic recreation on a specific program or just facilitating something that is meaningful for the person. Fantastic. And if I can stay with you there, Orke, there, are we trying to present a selection of activities that will appeal to a wide number of people or are we trying to focus on more specific groups? Um, well, I think it really depends in in, um, in the place where you are facilitating um, because we have come a long way um, and I believe that we're changing the way on how we facilitate social engagement in order to enhance quality of life, which used to be just developing a timetable Monday to Friday, nine to three, that doesn't work. I mean, even for ourselves, that's not the way that we work when we go on holidays. We have choices. Um, and it is important to actually, depending on the resources that you will have on site, to look at the numbers, to do um, a good assessment, um, to have conversations with the families, the FANAO, um, because at the end of the day, regardless of the program that you are going to be offering within a facility of 100 people, you need to have the ability to provide something that is going to be meeting the needs of all those people, but at the same time, provide those one-on-one -on -one engagements. And uh, you mentioned there that one-on-one -on -one is going to play a part of it. Maura, you've identified yourself as a one-on-one -on -one specialist practitioner. How do you reconcile this one-on-one -on -one versus group engagement? Yeah, there's there's some really important points there that have raised, and particularly for uh, Kelly talked about surface interests, and this is this is a really key thing. I, I do do some very little group work, and there's reasons for that, which we can circle back to. But one-on-one um, -on -one is where I specialise to cater for those individual interests, and often it's exploratory to find out those to get those deeper interests unearthed so that we can find, uh, I can add to the process of how that information is collected and then how that is shared with the team, the multidisciplinary care team. Um, I run a review uh, of the program and the engagement um, six monthly. And so this is where we bring everyone together to talk about those very things. So my, my work being one-on-one -on -one is much more focused on having individual interactions for those that are self-isolating, that aren't participating in larger social group activities. Um, and so I have to work very hard at finding time and finding the place where I can do that with individuals so that they're not presented in a group mm -hmm. because obviously someone that self-isolates will withdraw in a group and the person that maybe is more dominant, more outgoing, um, is likely to take over the interaction. So I need to actually, I do a lot of room visits um, and this requires some support from the team in them uh, attending with me um, so that in that way it can model to the team how I'm interacting and the way that I'm discovering the preferred interaction style of each individual. I call it the preferred interaction style, the way they like to be dealt with. Listening to all the other really good ideas that people have talked about, I think we need we, we can also step back one more step further and think about how the activities program fits within the, the context of the life of the person. So uh, we don't want to think of the activities program as like a, a, a separate offering. It, it should be part of um, clinical care. It's part of lifestyle care. It's part of um, uh, like meeting their needs. It's not, it's not an additional extra that, that, that 
that, that you check box mm. and how that program is embedded, I guess, in the care plans of the elders, in how staff treat them, like not just during the activities, but afterwards and before and during other care processes. I think that's really important an important part of making a meaningful and useful activities program. So it's not just a calendar of events. Great. And Lefe, can you just double down there and explain so when you said that activities will be part of a care plan, my initial thought is like, oh, is, is there mandatory singing at this time? Does this person need to have X, Y, and Z? You know, that, that when you say care plan, that's what I think. But how do you integrate that in a more organic way? If we know the person well, then we know how they like to interact and what their needs are. And so someone might hate groups, have never wanted to be grouped, you know, never gone to a group and would absolutely, you know, yell and kick and scream or leave if you force them to group singing. And they might want someone like Maury or, a, 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 you know, a friendly care worker to just chat with them or play cards with them, you know, once a day, that might be what's in their care plan. Whereas if you have someone who's very sociable, they might go to every single group that that the facility offers, including groups outside the unit in which she works in. And you might find her a special role as a volunteer to facilitate groups. Mm -hmm. So it's really knowing the person for every person, knowing that they're getting the right types of activities and socialization. So not missing anyone. That's why I should go in their care plan. On that note of the care plan and, and going back to the, the preferred interaction style, it, it, if you can unlock how someone likes to interact. So I, I'm thinking of one particular resident that likes to create mutual mischief. And that's, you know, for him in his early stages of dementia, he's quite concerned and depressed about his his plight that he as he calls it so he likes to have a mischievous um kind of interaction and what has happened at that service is that we've been you know playing around with that and writing letters to the manager um for various <laughs> things which the manager plays along with and staff have begun to interact in that and have also been asking to read the letter what's what have you written this week so it becomes part of the staff um, initiative to join in on this interaction and and a similar thing recently with someone that we discovered um, and really simply and because I'm sitting there and I'm observing a lot so I've got a, a lot of observational time was one of the uh, my elders and I can use her name Laurel that's quite okay to talk about Laurel she'll sit like this with her hands tucked underneath but if her thumbs are out she's cold and she actually feels the cold more than most of us. She's a reptile. You know, she's very, very cold. And we discovered this through observing her. And, and she was being sat at a really nice spot at the table, but right under the air conditioner. So through observation and interacting with her and, and having her trust where I could check that she was cold, we're able to say in our review, look, Laurel needs to be have a jacket. She's colder than everybody else. And that um, this, if she does this with her thumbs, this means she's cold. And, and these things come from observation as mm. well. And of course, this is where I think, and Okada might have a, a view on this, that I think um, people, uh, staff, care staff, and uh, of course, our activities team don't always have the time to um, unlock some of, of some of these conundrums that um, we get to observe. Yeah. Fantastic. And uh, I really like the this talk about activities that extend beyond specific timeframes. It's not 3 to 3.30 is, is the time we write letters. You know, the, the manager might be responding to a letter and send it back to this particular person. And it's an ongoing sort of banter and environment that's developing around the individual and, and their particular interests. So Sarah, you've been waiting very patiently and jumping over to you know, how do we how do we use those kind of activities? Do you have any experience in, in building programs that use activities that extend over a long period of time, over days, weeks, anything like that? Yeah. So, you know, the, the one thing backing up even a step, you know, Lee, you were talking about it, is it, there has to be the why. Why do we even have engagement and, and what are we trying to achieve, right? Um, and so I think that becomes this first question we have to answer, but when we think about activities or opportunities, it's about growth, right? You don't want to just do something once and then you're done with it, but how do you start something that continues and burns on and it draws you in and there's mysteriousness to it, 
right? You don't know exactly what's going to happen. There's just spontaneity. And so when you think about activities and engagement, you know, we stopped at this. I tried it once. It didn't work, mm. right? But you have to keep offering it and offering it in different ways at different times for different people in a different group one-on-one. Um, and, and working through that, I think, is where you learn the most, especially through that observation. But always thinking about how do I expand upon this next time, mm-hmm. right? If I'm going to offer music or art or creative curiosities of sorts, what are the next four to five after that? And what do they look like? And when I introduce it the first time, I talk about this progression mm-hmm. and I talk about this um, spontaneity or just interaction that could occur mm-hmm. and, and draw you back over and over. Fantastic. Lee Fei, you've done quite a lot of research and, and advocacy for people living with dementia. How do you think we can integrate activities for people living with dementia and, and people who aren't living with dementia? Having dementia or cognitive impairment is, is a continuum and definitely in residential settings. Um, it, to me anyway, you need to cater for everyone acknowledging that most people will have some kind of cognitive um, disability. Uh, I don't, I personally don't like segregating people into with dementia and without dementia. They're all people and um, it's our job to find, to unlock the thing that interests them. And often you'll see beautiful friendships come out of activities um, because they have a shared interest. So, for example, uh, an art program, uh, as Sarah was talking about, uh, you, you know, building the, that program over weeks and, and we've seen some beautiful programs where they put on an exhibition and uh, it doesn't matter if you've got dementia or not dementia, they encourage each other, they praise each other, they laugh at what they're doing. And, and art, for example, is also an activity that can extend beyond that that block, you know, the two to, to two to three we do art. Actually, if that person has access to art supplies um, and they love it, they, they can do art and drawing, you know, through the day themselves. So we certainly do need to take into account the level of cognition that the person has, but um, uh, it, it shouldn't make it it shouldn't be a distinction within the groups. You're trying to build relationships in those groups. Fantastic. Kelly, would you like to add? Yes. And and I agree with you, Lee And I think when you are planning and programming that you can do programs and events where people of all abilities can attend, I think what might need to just be addressed is how do you approach people with those different abilities or cognitive impairments? You know, and I still worked in a community that had multiple levels of care. I think back to, I'm going to go back to singing. Um, We would have a monthly singing group, all levels of care attended, but we just had as the programming professionals had to just plan accordingly. So we knew five of our residents who lived in memory care, we knew they loved music, they loved singing. We had to assign either someone from my team or somebody from nursing staff who would just go with them. That was part of their responsibility that day, just to make sure, you know, if they had any additional needs, they were fine. What, and sometimes I did that assignment. And what I found fascinating was when this group of individuals would arrive to this singing event every month, everybody else in the community was so excited and would welcome them with open arms and Hmm. they would reintroduce themselves. And, you know, we had done a lot of work internally to coach our residents that yes, dementia or Alzheimer's or cognitive impairment can be scary, but let's try and educate you. So you know that you can still have these relationships with your previous friends and neighbors who may be moved. And so I think there's a significant amount of opportunity when you take the time to flush all that out and educate and be proactive with your residents of all abilities that then you can also start to stave off maybe some misconceptions or stereotypes that go with aging, but that also go with cognitive impairment because it is 
scary. And, but that doesn't mean that those individuals suffering that aren't still living a full, robust life and they're happy. And so that's what we want to also impart by bringing everybody together. You know, this is actually quite exciting being part of the conversation um, because at the end of the day, we, we are all reflecting at our own future. It's going to be us one day. Mm. And I think we are trying to pave waves um, or to pave a good foundation uh, for us to be able to um, enjoy life in the best possible way, regardless of my my health or physical abilities or cognitive abilities. But um, one of the things that I would like to add is that um, it's not just about the programming. Yes, I do believe as a therapeutic recreation person that um, there are certain ways or, or um, probably programs that will uh, wake up dormant abilities on people. Mm. But at the same time, I believe that there is, um, um, it is extremely important to have a spontaneity in aged care in these environments. I do believe that it's important that um, we are all on, on, the, on the same page and that we all have the ability to have the permission to improvise, mm-hmm. which is something that when we are working with, with the care teams or we are part of the multidisciplinary teams, uh, there is this kind of barrier that um, that we don't don't feel like we have the permission, like our caregivers, to to be silly, uh, or our registered nurses that they just have a task list that they need to complete. But it's not actually on the task. It's about recognizing that engagement is actually a human right. That at the end of the day, we as humans do things for fun, um, and that at the end of the day. If I am, when I hopefully touch wood, I am 90 and um, and I develop severe dementia and I go back to speaking Spanish and I am going around the care home hugging people, someone is going to understand that um, that's part of my culture, that uh, hugging people, it's actually a good thing is that it, and that it's going to help me to settle down instead of someone thinking, oh my goodness, she has dementia. She's harassing people. We're going to put a proper care plan. She's going to be restrained. Let's give her medication. So I think um, this conversation is extremely important, not just now, but it's about how we can ensure that the knowledge that we have, what we're sharing today, we can share with the teams in a practical way so that we can all be part of the solution. That. You, I love your work. I always have, and you know I'm a big fan. And I think what 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 you're talking about is incredible because we're talking about legacy, and we're talking about our legacy because we we know people say, why do I work in aged care? And basically, because I think I want it to be a bit better when I get in. Um, to be really super blunt, and we talk about climate change and the coming. We might not, our kids might not see turtles. Well, I kind of think that this is something that we need to fix because we are soon to go potentially into aged care and this directly will affect us. And are we happy to go into these environments that we all work in? So that's that's my first point. And my other point coming back to what I think Sarah talked about growth and spontaneity. Um, part of my work and what I try to do is to, I mean, we have to remember that people are going into aged care and if we don't have a sense of growth, then we are dying and people need to experience, we all need to experience growth. So one of the things that I think that um, I like to try and bring and, and the team, um, there's a team of us that do this work called the Outside In Collective, is to focus on the novel. So you have the familiar, the familiar things that happen in a residential aged care service or, or a respite centre, but then you try to create novel experiences and these are spontaneous. You don't know where they're going to go. And so my work is generative. It's not a performance. So I use I use music quite a lot, but I lose, use many other forms, particularly what I call smart arsery. Some people refer to as banter. So that you create a situation, you throw a grenade into the mix with your elder and you don't know what you're going to get back. And it provides great opportunity and no one knows what's going to happen. And it's in that space of spontaneity that you talked about, Sarah, where magic happens. And this is what I think can often be forgotten in a residential setting. I think we can forget 
that we need those spontaneous magical moments where we don't know what's happening. One of the impediments to spontaneity is the culture in many um, facilities of the checkbox or the list of things to do. Mm. And um, part of what we do is try and give staff permission to play, permission to connect, um, you know, uh, work and play aren't opposite. You can play at work and letting staff um, be part of that engagement, bring their skills, their musicality or their art or their horse or their child to work as part of the engagement. That's part of changing that culture from checkboxing to being relationship-centred. Yeah. You know, I think that calendar approach is so structured that it just does not leave space for um, organic moments when they happen because we have convinced ourselves that if we do things in a structured manner, that's what people want. And there is some need for structure, but I, I think that is such a detriment and um, mm. barrier to your point of what we're doing and how to get better. And I think the hour, and we talk about the hours all the time too. Like why, why do we staff it the same way we would staff a business? Well, why do, and lastly, until we get past this notion that there's one person or one department responsible for the idea of engagement, we have to think differently. And someone asked the other day, like, what is this, what does senior living look like in five to 10 years? Mm. And I said, I hope so much that there is not an engagement department. There is not one person solely responsible for this interaction during the day, but it is just the culture and it's a part of everyone's job and people love doing it. Right. It's not a, oh, I have to do this, but I cannot wait to interact with the residents in this capacity to experience that playful, that joyfulness. Yeah. I got to say, um, coming into some aged care facilities with Silver Adventures and, and doing virtual reality with with seniors as well, I've been kind of struck when people are like, oh, the, the lifestyle staff aren't here today, so we'll do that later. Like, uh, what? What's what's that about? Is Sorry, the uh, you know the fun people aren't here, so we've just got the people who are doing the the clinical tasks at the moment. Orkeda, is is that? Uh, I mean, you're representing people who are lifestyle staff and engagement staff. How does how do they see that kind of divide? Um, you know, I think it, it, it's something that it's happening worldwide, so it's not um, specific to New Zealand. And there is this new movement which. Um, um, it, it is not my intention, uh, so I apologize in advance, not, not being disrespectful, but we have this new movement where we're trying to put, kind of dilute an essential role for everyone to do the same. And look, I do, I do strongly believe that um, engagement is everyone's responsibility, but I also believe that if I am a caregiver and I am passionate actually about doing a really good job and I do a relationships approach to my client and through that I am engaging someone, that's amazing. But if I am asking a caregiver to actually do the role of someone who absolutely is passionate about recreation, then that's wrong because we're setting those people for failure mm. and that's what is happening now. Um and, you know, once again, it's all about, it's about connection. It's about understanding. It's about relationships. But in age care, it's relationships before the task. If you don't build that report, and, and I'm not only talking about your workmates, but most importantly, the people that we care for or that we support, um, the families. Um, how do we ensure that, um, if I am a hundred and I am at the end of my life, I still have a purpose. How do I ensure that uh, there is meaning for me? How do I ensure that uh, people actually supporting me, regardless of your job title, are helping me to, to feel that sense of belonging within this place, in this moment, in this time? So... To me, and, and look, there's plenty of research and we're so lucky that Lee Fei Law is here today. Um, plenty of research that shows that uh, as humans, we are wired to, to be connected. 
that um, regardless of the stage of your life, even if it's the last moments of your life, if you have someone holding your hand, um, it's going to be great so that you can die peacefully. Um, so I believe once again, that it is important for every single one of us today to, to advocate for this space in the best possible way. Uh, it is our legacy. Um, and most importantly, we definitely need to share this knowledge with everyone. Believe me, I am a pain everyone where I go, regardless of who you are, like <laughs> you might be the CEO or the manager or, or an academic. I always make sure that I talk about engagement and I, and I actually make them think about themselves. What if it's you? I don't want you to think about the person that you are supporting. It's you. You are a hundred. You are at the end of your life. How would you like me to look after you? What are the things that you love doing? What did you want me to have ready for you? So just put it back to them. And then you will see how the light bulb suddenly goes on. Awesome. Hey, something that we've mentioned a couple of times here is this idea of having a regular daytime schedule that activities end at three or five o'clock. And I, I can imagine that one barrier to this for anybody who's programming is listening to that, they might think, well, we don't have the funding or we don't have the staffing to make that sort of thing possible. Does anybody have any sort of solutions of, of how you can engage start, sorry, engage residents or care recipients at all hours of the day? You know, I think it goes back to recognizing that it's not one department's responsibility and that it is a team approach to this. And so, right, you, there's not money there and more people are not the answer, right? You just put more people on the staff, that's not the answer. But it is this idea that people can recognize, I equate it to this. If you walk into a community, you do not need to be a part of the housekeeping staff to know that there is something on the floor that needs to be picked up, right? If there is trash on the floor, you pick it up. Mm -hmm. If there is food sitting somewhere, you pick it up. We have not got to that point yet that when people are just sitting idly, not engaged, staring at something, that that is not necessarily the right approach, right? Um, just because they're out of the room in a common area mm. does not constitute as engagement. And so we have to teach people to look at what does engagement look like? Again, what is the outcome of engagement? And when you start to recognize that, it's no longer a task of, I need you to come do this. That's not a part of your job because this person is off. So can you please start this movie or pop the popcorn? It is the residents need me to facilitate something so engagement happens, regardless if it's in my exact job task or not. And I would say that starts at management. Mm. Right. If you're a manager and you don't come out of the office to engage residents and to ex ex show by example this, then the staff aren't going to do it either. Right? So it's it seems simple, you know, but until we say it's not more people, it, it's not expanding the department. It's solely the responsibility of, of the current staff and it can be done. To riff off that, if we start to think of our uh, activity staff as leaders, activity leaders or clinical leaders in activity, they, their, their jobs are to maybe to program as a know, you know, figure out what things people engage with and maybe have the, the stuff there, you know, the art equipment or the right music, but that all staff can put on the iPod or play the right song or have the right conversation with the person. Mm. And if John gets up at nine o'clock at night and he's going to play cards, then the deck of cards needs to be there. Not the activity staff, but that person who's on night shift needs to know that John likes to play cards and have a hot milk at nine o'clock at night. So, um, so your activity staff aren't just, aren't, doing the activities, but they're the leaders and figuring out what happens and, you know, making sure the right people know. And there isn't, there isn't more money, but you can look at when you schedule your activity staff so that they're on when people are wanting to be active. So many facilities have no one on on the weekend, for example, or they'll go home at three o'clock and people are really active, you know, in the late, uh, in the late evening. So, 
the roster can change. Um, we have a lovely program where we have some of our health sciences students living and volunteering in, um, in, a, in a residential aged care facility, and they do lots of activities on the weekend. They're not there to be clinicians. They're there as volunteers, but they run lots of activities on the weekends and they bring the families in. And it's so fabulous because you've just got someone organizing and bringing energy, you know, bringing energy to the place. And it's it's that energy too that you're talking about. I think I think we also think that that an activity has to be led by someone up front, and that there's a group of people that are passively consuming the the activity. And I think also, I mean, what we try to create often is that when I'm doing my stuff, um, that the staff are involved in that. And I think you're talking about relationships earlier. People and it's kind of like entertainment versus engagement. You know, like there's this this divide that leaders seem to lean and think you're a, an entertainer, and there is a very important place for entertaining. Don't get me wrong, especially for you, Ash, because you're a musician. But but um, I'm looking at engagement. So so when when you have people playing, and when I see some group activities, and I, I know one person that does it so well, is that there's a real banter and a mix going on between the elders and the person leading the activity, but also the staff coming in and joining in. And what the elders at this particular service uh, are part of is this playful environment that where people are actually interacting normally and playing with each other, not walking past and having their head down and thinking, I'm not part of that. So it's the way I think the culture of the way people see their workspace and they interact and they feel like there is no license to play. I, I, also, I also think that many um, people in my experience don't always know what questions to ask to, to get deeper than those surface interests that, that you talked about earlier. And, and I think that people also, in my experience, what I've seen is, is some people are not sure how to um, invite or entice people into an activity they kind of say do you want to feed the birds and a person that self-isolates or is withdrawn or is is sitting in depression is going to say no no I don't want to do that and it's kind of more like have you seen what's out the window come look at this and it's it's the way that you entice people into these um, engagements and I think that's that's a skill mm. and not everyone has that skill I think people it can be modeled and if you have lifestyle leaders like you talked about, Lee Fei, people can model that. But it, but it's something that that needs to be shared and 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 learnt. And and it's a very difficult, <laughs> it's a very difficult skill. It comes from curiosity. I think curiosity. People talk about what's important in this kind of work, and empathy of obvious is is a no brainer. But curiosity is the other thing. What makes you tick? And when you try to uncover what it is that makes somebody tick. That curiosity leads, flows to authenticity. And that's the other thing that people want. They want you to be authentically, authentically interested in who they are and genuinely interested to unlock that. And that requires you also to share some of yourself, I think. Maury, I'm so glad you said that about how do you effectively invite or entice people to want to be involved in different opportunities and events. And, but part of that, yes, it, I agree with you. It is a skill. It is a gift. <laughs> I had a former colleague, she was a rock star at this, but when I think back to why she excelled at this so much and how we all tried to emulate her, she knew the residents so well. She knew what the trigger was for each and every person like I remember when I started at this one community and I worked with this person, I would go up and down our assisted living hallway, knocking on doors, inviting people to come to my exercise class. And I'd get a handful. Her name was Elizabeth. She would come up onto that floor and she'd be like, oh, you should have 15 people out here. I'll be right back. And within minutes, I was like, what did you say to them that I didn't say? And so, but I learned from her and it always came back to, she know, knew the residents so well. She knew exactly what made them tick. So she knew I could just tell this one, remind this one, ask this one, or even just say, hey, come on out. We're having a bunch of people get together. And then they come out and they'd be like, oh, we're exercising. <laughs> I'd be like, sorry, here we go. But it, 
And that is all part of it. But that always goes back to what we've all been saying this evening is it's the relationships and it's what is our process to get to know people and how deep can we go, Maury? You know, Sarah and I always ask the question, what matters most to you today? You know, we, I think sometimes in, in our world, people talk about, oh, the big, you know, bucket list items. Do you, do you want to jump out of a plane or go on this like insane trip? But we, we whittle it down to you know what matters most today. I want to have lunch with friends. I want to go for a walk. I want to attend that painting class, you know, whatever. And, and it's, it doesn't need to be these big, bold things. It just means what, what's going on today that really is important to me. And I want to make sure I follow through on. And, and it's, and you know, the other thing too, Kelly, is that I love, I always ask, I always try to find out what drives you nuts. What is it that really annoys you? Because there's a whole lot of fun in that, but there's also, you can walk around that. You know, like, I hate people that honk their horns when you're letting people in. That drives me nuts. My dad used to hate people that took up two car spaces. You know, that was a personal thing. What keeps you awake at night, but what puts you to sleep? And I think all those things, those positive triggers, um, as I call them, you know, I think they are so important. And, and all this does stem from relationship. And that's why... I think, you know, and, and I don't mean anything against Tom Kitwood, but I think we need to move away from the idea of person-centred care and come back to the term that I hear a lot more now is relationship-based care. You know, it's about relationship. Everything we do is built on relationship and how we relate to each other. And again, I do think curiosity comes from that. Um, but I mean, just to ask Kelly, like you said that you learnt from this, this worker how she enticed people and invited people. I mean, how open do we think everyone is to having that modelled, you know, and having what they do and their set tasks challenged? I mean, you have to do that very delicately, right? I mean, you're open-minded. I agree. And it's, <laughs> I remember when we would have interns or new employees, I would make it part of orientation you have to go spend two hours with Elizabeth to see how she engages and invites residents. Like I made, I, I ended up making it part of orientation because it was so profound and significant. And people, I mean, and then people would be like, I don't know if I can do that. I'd be like, with time, you'll be able to, because you're going to get to know the residents well over time. But it's, it's, you know, Sarah and I say this so often in our work, how often do we just hit pause or stop and, and, and ask ourselves, what are we doing? How well do we know our folks? And, and it, it, all, it all ties together with the schedule of the day and the calendar of offerings. And do we need to be running around like crazy people? And, you know, at one point I was even pushing for an organization, you know, don't do any programs from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. I, I know like your face more. You're like, what? <laughs> and I was like, let's let's build some purposeful or intentional downtime into our day. What do most programming people, you know, commiserate about? I don't have enough time to plan to do better with what I offer my residents. When is a some downtime organically or naturally for residents, kind of that midday post-lunch. So I'm like, so to me, talking about how do we schedule at hours that are more robust and active, you know, I always think about mid-morning up to lunch and then late afternoon to post-dinner, like into the evening. And, you know, something, I can't remember who said something earlier and then I'll stop, but I can't recall the organization here in the United States to give them credit but an organization came up with a night owl program and they took a full FTE or full-time employee, which is 40 hours. And they put that 40 hours into having somebody, I think, I want to say they came in around nine or 10 o'clock at night and worked until like five, six o'clock in the morning to engage the people who are naturally night owls and also engage people. So maybe in a memory care neighborhood or memory care community, people who get up in the middle of the night and maybe there's wandering and different behaviors, they were addressing that. 
And I found this fascinating. I, I would have to do some deep research to figure out who did this, but the, it went beautifully for this, this organization. And so I think the other thing is coming out of this COVID area, you know, how can we, how can we pivot? This is a wonderful time to kind of look at everything we all focus on with resident engagement, such a different fashion and, and come up with some new ways to approach it all. I, I wanted to share something that, that might be interesting. My, my background is in music, as I've said a few times now, and I used to work on cruise ships and I would program the music on cruise ships. So we would be looking at when, what times of the day people would want to hear music, what kinds of music they want to hear, and something that we experimented with in bringing in that spontaneous element was how can we surprise people throughout their night or their day on the ship? And, and so, you know, they would come out of dinner and there would be a band standing right at the door singing or something and, and just trying to throw new ideas at them. So I, this is very interesting for me to go, oh, actually, it's it's quite similar in how do you actually look at what people want and, and what would mimic the excitement of real life? And on that, let's take a very short break. Welcome back, everybody. And we've been talking a lot about residential aged care at the moment. Can we uh, can we talk about home care? We started looking at this quite a few years ago when we had to change the assessment for home care to put in a section on interests and activities. I think that's improved now. Um, and because home care is usually one-on-one and it's usually the same person, you know, each week or the same few people every week, it's actually easier to build that relationship. You're in the person's home. You can see what, you know, what makes up their life. And as part of personal care, shopping, uh, recreation, you can really enhance. I I think it's easier to enhance the person's engagement when you're one-on-one in a person's home or in the community. Um, Part of it, again, is giving permission to the care staff to have a laugh and have a cup of tea because their sheet says they're here to clean the house. It doesn't say, and you should stop and have a chat with, you know, with Janine while you're here because you're the only person she's seeing today. Um, So having that permission to clean the house, but also stop for a five minute cup of tea because it makes a big difference to Janine. I think, you know, that's, that's where it's going. Um, There's not going to be much more time. So, so having engagement as part of the other duties is the first thing. Um, in Australia, we have consumer-directed care, and um, part of it is also, I guess, educating both the the care the the care coordinators, the case managers, and people and the elders and families that it's worthwhile investing in your social health. So people will spend their money on getting their house clean. They'll spend their money on shopping, but they seem to not want to spend their money to have someone take them out, you know, for an ice cream or to take them, drive them to see their friend they haven't seen for a long time. And uh, because that's seen as frivolous or not essential to care. So part of it is also, I think, educating um, the planners and elders that this is a really good option to improve their quality of life and they should invest their funds in that. It's a total well-being and you can't separate human components of health versus social well-being and everything else. So you can have great clinical care, but you can be lonely and devastated, right? You can have bad clinical care, but you can have amazing connections and relationships that can be equally important. And so, um, and it kind of keeps going. It's all about relationships, right? But helping people to understand that your role is not just, I don't know why we do this in aged care, but we're so siloed in how we interact and treat or connect with people and helping. You would never do that with a child or with a middle-aged person. And so why do we separate all of that as we age? Um, And I think that's a basic caregiving lesson that we, 
if you look at any type of education and caregiving, it's just not there. And that play, right? You lose that importance of play because it does seem juvenile or is it is it childlike? Is it a waste of my time? And I think the one thing that is also missing in that home care as we're talking about this is that same discovery. Kelly and I have had the opportunity to talk with some home care agencies, providers, and, and that same resident discovery, patient discovery is missing. And it goes straight to a list of diagnoses and conditions that I'm treating. And so again, it has to be that foundational approach of who are you as a person? Clinical chart aside, who are you? What's the social prescription, really? It needs to be socially prescribed. It's so easy. Well, not, not always easy, but it's much easier in someone's house to, um, to get to know who they are. There's pictures on the walls. There's memorabilia. You, you know, you, it's, it's easier to, find, to, to, to learn who they are. And in some um, residential aged care facilities, so in some nursing homes, the innovative ones are starting to try and do a home visit before they admit the person to the to the nursing home because that's when you really figure out who they are and you know what they're before that big shock of the change and so I'm starting to see that not many places but they're starting to do those visits which is really exciting. Do, do you think that's the point where so with home care that's the point where this you know this information can be garnered and 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 and, and drawn in so that it's present when people do if they do come into residential aged care because it seems to me that, you know, as we know, people are coming into aged care further down, residential, further down their, their journey of dementia and, and their care needs. And often that's when it's hardest to bond and form bonds, not only with people like myself, but with the staff and with each other. So it, it seems that's the primary time to really um, get your handle around the profile of who is this person? Who are they? That, that's um, the that, ideal, Moz, but mm. even within the one organisation, the home care team don't really talk to the residential care team. So I haven't yeah. seen an example, I can't see why it couldn't happen, that when someone moves from home care to residential care, that their care worker kind of helps them transition, you know, so, uh, you know, talks to the, the residential care team of what they're interested in and what they like and might come and, you know, visit them or work on, on that you know, on that unit for a bit to really mm. help them. But we don't see any examples of that. I don't even know if they have the same, they can share records, you know, they can share the past care plan. So until there's better integration of home care and residential care so that we have what, what we call a warm referral, you know, so that the staff from the one team talk to the staff from the other team with the person and their family there so that it's, mm. it's a more seamless transition. Um, you know, all that knowledge that the home care worker has just sits with them and never moves on to residential. And, and this, this, I experienced this in residential as well. But of course, you know, what you're talking, we're talking about, um, this is a great area, Ash, for a, another um, panel podcast, you know, how to integrate. Absolutely. I yeah. love the term warm referrals too. But the, the, this, this sharing of knowledge just is, is incredible. And, and part of, you know, quickly part of the review that I, I run does try to bring all those in, you know, because people like the cleaners know stuff because they're there at different hours and they know things about people that nobody else knows. But I, I do, I do, I, I do get alarmed, Leifei, when you, when you say that we, we don't know if they talk to each other because that, that seems to be a, a major gap. Well, they don't talk to each other within the organisation often because if we mm. try and talk to the two managers, they hardly talk to each other. So I haven't heard of this happening. We we see some of these warm handovers from from um, hospital to nursing home teams who know each other very well. And if they're trying to discharge someone from hospital who perhaps has behaviours or you know who needs has special needs, you'll see the hospital team work with the nursing home team and do this warm handover. Whereas you have I don't I haven't seen any other examples of that really, and that's unusual, but it does happen. Mm. Mm. Hey guys, just to jump in now, sorry, okay, just because we're, we're getting close to the end of time and well, not the end of all time, but the end of our time today. And I just wanted to, uh, I just wanted to open it up to you all. If you have any questions for each other, because we have people here from Australia, New Zealand, America with various experiences and backgrounds. Does anybody have anything they, they want to know about the questions they want answered? 
I would like to ask Arcadia, from your point of view, is it predominant that you have a degree professional or a rec therapist that is overseeing programming in in your organizations? Um, so we have been working on that. We um, things have changed in the last five years. People were not required to have a qualification. Uh, now they do, uh, particularly because under the Minister of Health, you need to have a qualified. In New Zealand, they are called diversional therapies, but it's recreational therapy um, in a place where people with dementia and basically 90% of every care home will have people living with cognitive impairment or someone living with dementia. Um, But not only that, um, auditors have been working hard on trying to, um, when they go and do audits, certification audits, they will ask if the recreational therapist is actually registered. So that means that if someone who is meeting national competences, follows a code of ethics, standards of practice. Uh, So we are trying in the country, and we're just on the baby steps to make sure that we have consistency on the delivery of care, that activities is not just something to kill the time, to keep people occupied, to entertain, but it's actually a proper profession that should be valued. That's where we are at the moment. Um, Something that I wanted to just quickly make a comment on uh, regarding home care in New Zealand, there is is only one place that I am aware of where they do hire recreational therapists to do education for the caregivers because they value the importance of training the caregivers on how, okay, you're going to be doing tasks, but how do you do it so that you can actually facilitate and foster social engagement? Uh, so they're working really hard on that. And I have actually done quite a few training for the teams. Um, and from the New Zealand perspective, and I don't know how much people are aware of, so we follow the Treaty of Waitangi principles, and that's kind of embedded as part of the delivery of care that we do. So people's culture um, and trying to uh, close the gap on inequality, it's quite a strong in our country is something that you just can't get away with it. Uh, it's about uh, Maori people, but at the same time, people from all cultures. So the Maori point of view, it's about people of all cultures and how we uh, support everyone, not just one specific um, ethnicity. Yes. So, yeah, it's kind of a unique place, to be honest, and uh, to facilitate engagement. And, and But we still have a lot of room for improvement. But we have, um, you know, by having a strong advocates and touching uh, on the right, touching the right doors to the right people, um, it, 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 it works. Yes. I didn't have to, anything to add on that. I was curious about what happened to diversional therapists. They seem to be disappearing um, from residential aged care. I recall there was more. And, and, and I sort of feel that I want to be careful how I say this, but, but I felt that, feel that, there's a certain rigor to, you know, studying intensely, you know, div- diversion. Um, and, and when I say that, I mean, you know, methodologies and, and, and modalities of engagement. Um, but I, I do, I do kind of wonder, you know, what's happened to our DTs. They don't seem to be as, as prevalent um, in the service anymore. I don't know if I'm, I'm right or wrong there. I would agree, Maori, that we, um, there's certainly no requirement that, that we have in Australia that we have in a accredited DT. Um, DTs generally are less valued than the other allied health. I I think that would be reasonable. And it's very unusual to find one, a a qualified DT in a nursing home now. I worry about that. I think I'd mentioned that to you you before. Um, I I just wondered if I could briefly sort of ask about families and like, because anyone listening to this that is a family member, I kind of and I wondered what the others thought, because I think families sit on this gold mine of information about their loved one, their mum, their dad, their auntie. And more often than not, what I see is that there's this massive, and I know from personal experience with my mum, that there's this massive forms that you have to fill out to get mum and dad into the service. And then the last one at the bottom that is not required to be filled out at any point in time and often gets left is tell us about your mum or your dad. And I know that's a source of frustration for a lot of activities teams. But there's also something else that I see with families that when I ask about, you know, what did your dad do? Uh, what did he like? And I say, oh, he doesn't like anything. He's got dementia. There's a, there's a resignation 
to to this and and I'm, and it's really hard and it's a stumbling block for the teams but I think again it comes back to asking questions because I, I, I was doing some research a while ago for a, a company and I started to ask what well, okay well that's cool I understand that but before you go can I ask what did dad do when he came home from work and it would be like oh he'd um he'd get into his gumboots take his business shirt off and he'd go out in the garden oh what did he do oh he had a fern house Oh, he had a fern house. Oh, ferns, orchids, he loved them. And there it is. There's the thing that you're looking for. But I think families don't realise the goldmine of information they sit on, which can help us to understand all the thing, things that Sarah and Kelly and Okeda and Lefei have talked about, is to, to know who this person is. And when someone is progressively along their journey of dementia and if they're maybe not communicating in a way that we can understand, it's often, you, you, if, if, if the family members don't give you the information, it's lost, it's not known. And I think there's a really big gap here too that we could fill and finding ways of engaging families to give us those stories. I, I truly agree that family is the wealth of knowledge. I think the hardest part is when you get that written content or when you get that information, where does it go? Right, because we can't just keep living in notebooks. So what is the repository exactly like Kelly said at the beginning? that we can pull this information up and it's pushed to us, to the CARIC team, rather than going to search for it in a binder. Guys, we've covered so much today. This has been really fascinating, very interesting for me and, and great to kind of have a, a new group of people together in a room, a virtual room together to talk about these ideas. Thank you so much for your time, Sarah, Maury, Kelly, Okeda and Lee Fei. We really appreciate it and uh, we'll see you soon. Thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks Ash. Bye-bye. Thank you, everybody. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Aged Care Enrichment Podcast, brought to you by Silver Adventures. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. And if you're enjoying it, please leave us a review. We'd really appreciate it. If you're interested in finding out how immersive virtual reality experiences can enrich the lives of older adults, visit the Silver Adventures website today at www.silver.com adventures.com.au. See you next week.